0: Now we got all the prescriptions and we have to fill them. So we go to the King's Pharmacy around the corner, but we can't go there for every prescription because that will look too suspicious. So Les presents me with a stack of MapQuest printouts and we begin our trek upstate.
1: Hey there, and welcome to Grit, True Stories That Matter, a weekly podcast on the art and craft of the personal narrative story. This episode is the first in Season 2. In Season 1, my partner Kurt and I had conversations about stories and storytellers. We also had a few interviews with storytellers, and a few of our episodes included 99-second stories. Kurt is stepping aside from his co-hosting role so he can spend more time developing his story coaching business. He will be missed, but he will be an ongoing contributor to the podcast. So I want to thank Kurt for everything he did to help build this podcast. I really appreciate it. I wish him well in his business. Now, moving forward, things will be a little more consistent. Going to have a conversation each week with one storyteller. They will share a story and together we will break it down. We will focus on the evolution of the story, how it changed, how it improved, how it became more engaging or more relatable and perhaps more memorable so that we can help you craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories. Personal stories. And yes, grit stories. So this is our format moving forward. Hopefully we found the sweet spot. For season two... I will be talking with and breaking down stories by women. New episodes are released on Fridays, so please subscribe. If you listen on Apple, rate and review this podcast. It will help other people find it. Thank you for that. You can learn more about workshops and events and everything else we're up to by following the link in the show notes. This week, I am talking with Rana Levy. I first met Rana last year at a mutual friend's story group. Rana lives up in Brooklyn. She's a teacher, a storyteller, also a solo performance artist. And she has got a unique style that I've really grown to love. So I'm really glad that she's joining us here to tell one of her stories and then have a conversation with me and breaking down that story and how that fits into her story or other artistic endeavors. So here it is. Rana's story. Seven Minutes. And after Rana's done, stick around, because Rana and I are going to break it down. Let's dive in.
0: It's June 2004, and I'm sitting with Lass, and I'm watching this purple chemotherapy concoction drip into his arm, And then at night, when those chemo drugs metabolize, these toxins seep through his skin and they emit this vile odor. And I just want to gag and I can't sleep, but I stay in the bed next to Les. Les is my boyfriend. Les is the man who waited 10 years for me, loving me unconditionally while I kept running away and I was afraid to commit until five years ago when I stopped running and I grew up and I was ready to be with the man that I always loved. Now it's August, and new tumors have begun to grow in Les's groin. And after one of the chemo sessions, as, I will, as I'm wheeling him to the elevator, the receptionist asks him if he wants to schedule his next appointment. And Les turns to her and says, I'm not coming back. And I'm just blindsided. I sit on Les's porch, and I'm smoking cigarettes, drinking a Pellegrino. And Nathan, his grown son, who keeps flying back and forth from LA, well, they're both in the bedroom and they're on the phone with the Hemlock Society. That's the organization that promotes compassion and choices and dying with dignity. And and Les has read their book, Final Exit. It's a how to book on self deliverance and it's about the laws and the ethics. And I refuse to read that book. And so Nathan comes out. And he tells me that Les is relieved because now he knows he has control over his life and he has chosen Wednesday, October 13th. And they're happy. Well, I'm not happy. They have just made his death real. I mean, why did they do this? Maybe the doctors could have found another chemo or maybe they could remove the tumors or they could find something to manage it. I mean, why can't they just wait? Now I'm going to have to think of that date every day. And I'm going to have to think of this plan every day. And I don't like this and I'm scared. Why? You know, when, when Les dies, we're going to have to call 911 and the EMTs are going to come and they're going to try to resuscitate him or that they're going to ask for a DNR and then they'll investigate because this is a felony and we are accomplices and we'll get arrested and we'll go to prison. And what am I What's my family going to think? And my friends, and I'll lose my job. And Why? If we just get home hospice, the hospice nurse can come. She can pronounce the death. I have to start teaching in September. And Les says we have to start preparing now. So he needs prescriptions for all the pills. So I take him to all of his doctors. And I drive to his primary care physician in midtown Manhattan. Les goes in, and I'm parked at a meter. And I see the traffic cop walking close. Now I got money in the meter, but my mind, I start thinking that she's going to knock on the window and she's going to want to know what we're doing and why we're there. This is where my mind goes. Les gets in the car and tells me that the doctor did not want to give him a prescription, but he did. Now we got all the prescriptions and we have to fill them. So we go to the King's Pharmacy around the corner, but we can't go there for every prescription because that will look too suspicious. So Les presents me with a stack of MapQuest printouts and we begin our trek upstate and we go to strip malls and and shopping centers. And then there's this one mom and pop pharmacy in the middle of nowhere. And it's got four parking spaces and we pull in and Les is already looking gaunt at this point, and he goes in, and I'm sitting in the car, and I, I know, I know this little pharmacist is going to walk out, he's going to knock on the window and want to know what we're doing, and I just, I'm just so scared, I don't like this. We store all the second all in the bottom drawer of a bureau in the bedroom, and then finally, finally, we get home hospice, and I am relieved And the nurse comes over, and she sits with us. She sits at a a chair at the end of the bed, and Les tells her of his plan, and she nods. And then he asks for something to keep him calm until October 13th, and she prescribes Ativan and morphine. That evening, Nathan goes to pick up Les's 92-year-old mother, and the three of us sit with Les in the bedroom. And we crack open a beer and we pass it around, each taking sips. And Les says that the three most important people in his life, the three people that he loves the most, are sitting here with him. And I I, I just, I don't want to cry. And I see Les's mother, she's got a hanky to her mouth and she's shaking a little bit, and I know she's crying. And we just take turns sipping the beer. And Nathan drives his grandmother home, and Les takes the meds, and he he begins to nod off. So we put on this Yankees-Red Sox game on TV because Les always liked the underdog, and he was rooting for the Red Sox. But we, we turn the sound down, and we blast a Bob Dylan CD because that's his favorite artist. And then Les falls into this deep sleep. Nathan plans to fly back to L.A. over the weekend, and I'm going to be teaching, so we make a chart of friends who are going to come to the house and check in on less and make sure he has liquids and and if he needs anything and I don't teach on Fridays and I'm home in the afternoon so this chart is Monday through Thursday in the mornings and we, we're going to fill in the names as soon as we check with everybody but we thumbtack this temporary chart over the nightstand to the right of the bed and then we go in the porch and we just smoke in silence but we never need the chart and October 13th never comes. The next day, Nate and I take turns sitting with Les in the bedroom as he sleeps. And it's my turn. And I have my arm around his head. I'm resting on the pillow. And I'm, I'm just holding him. I'm just holding him. And then he dies. Peacefully and with dignity. Thank you.
1: Question number one, Rana, how did you get sort of formally into story stuff.
0: So I had a solo show and I did it in fringe festivals. It was a, there was a period of time, everybody was at least here was, was doing the New York fringe and a lot of solo shows. And I, I, I enjoyed it, but it was, um, I was telling stories about my students and my life, the whole, the sequence. And there was the this show to me was a lot of like acting and characters. Mm-hmm. And I liked it, but I didn't like it. I was like, "I'm just telling a story. Do I have to have all of this blocking mm-hmm. and the characters? I'm telling a story." And I did the show for a while. um and then a few years later, I saw a couple of shows, actually Jamie Brickhouse. I saw one of his. Oh. Shows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And another man that I had met, and they were just they were telling their stories, but they were just telling stories. Right. It wasn't all of this fanfare of a play or acting. They were telling yeah. a story. And I said, that's what I, I I just want to tell the story. And so I saw some open mics. I took a class. And um I said, This is this is what I want to do.
1: And when was that? Do you remember ish?
0: I took a class. Um, with Jeff Zimmerman. I don't know if you know him.
1: Okay. Jeff does like comedic storytelling He's a lot. Right?
0: Stand-up is storytelling. Storytelling is stand-up. Mm-hmm. And that was my first class. And I loved it. I loved it. And I told actually that yoga story. That 99, mm-hmm. That's part of a longer story that I developed in Jeff's class. And I had a blast. Even though I have no interest in being a stand-up comic. Part of his thing is you have to go to open mics. He believes the only way to do the class is you have to go to open mics. And so we would go as a group The the students, there were only like six mm-hmm. of us in the class, we'd meet in his living room and we would go to these awesome. open mics together. And it was a oh, really good. wonderful support. Um, I said, this is this is what I wanna do. And I'm in the classroom all the time. I'm in front of students and I've, I've done shows and I'm in front of students. And I like to tell my students um, sometimes a personal anecdote to make a point mm-hmm. To connect something. I have some colleagues who absolutely refuse. They will not cross that line. Nothing personal. Mm-hmm. And I, that's just not who I am. After Jeff's class and meeting
1: people and going to the open mics here,
0: that's how I got into it.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you remember, I know that, that particular class is a little bit of a sort of comedic. Yes. Do you remember what one or two things about the class and his teachings and all that you were like, wow, I didn't realize that that helps the story, like a surprising element. You're like, whoa, okay, now that I know that.
0: A lot of the st- structure, I never, I mean, I write, but I never thought about it. Well, maybe I did a little bit from the solo show world. I think what surprised me and delighted me was um, the inner monologue. There's the external you and the internal you. Yeah. And you say, well, like, like I hear in the swap, people say, well, what were you feeling? What are you, what's going on in your head? I mean, why did they do this? Maybe the doctors could have found another chemo, or maybe they could remove the tumors, or they could find something to manage it. I mean, why can't they just wait? Now I'm going to have to think of that date every day, and I'm going to have to think of this plan every day, and I don't like this, and I'm scared. Why? You know, when when Les dies, we're going to have to call 911. And the EMTs are gonna come and they're gonna try to resuscitate him or they're, they're gonna ask for a DNR and then they'll investigate because this is a felony and we are accomplices and we'll get arrested and we'll go to prison. And what am I fa- what's my family gonna think? And my friends and I'll lose my job and why?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that was lovely. You could say out loud in your story.
1: Mm-hmm. In the story. Thinking. yeah,
0: And it can work and it's it's, that was great. But my mind, I start thinking that she's going to knock on the window and she's going to want to know what we're doing and why we're there. This is where my mind goes. And I'm sitting in the car and I I know I know this little pharmacist is going to walk out. He's going to knock on the window and want to know what we're doing. And I just, I'm just so scared. I don't like this. I
1: think that is one of maybe a small, like a handful of things that's most, I don't know if the word's like misunderstood or not utilized as much as I think it could be from maybe people who are newer to it is that that's a great example. Like the inner voice or the inner monologue is one for sure. Yep. Um, all right. So let's say you have an idea for a story, mm-hmm. right? Maybe there's a show coming up or whatever your reasons are. Do you have a process of any kind? Do you have a starting point or a map that helps you figure this stuff out?
0: First of all, getting stories, is very, it's very difficult. I mean, people in the swap like, oh, I got to think of something for Monday night. I just, I don't relate to that. I can't. It's a very Mm. glorious, I write everything just because I write. And everything you've heard me tell, I've written down, but I can write the way I speak. Same. So I think my process is I just think of stuff and start writing. Sometimes I just like vomit stuff on paper just to get ideas down. And Mm -hmm. I save it all. It's funny. I was looking back at like this first version of the story that I'm going to, tell here i looked at it's like oh my god i can't believe i wrote all that and i started it that way but i but it's i just have to get it out there's no hard and fast process i just write i think of things and i do a lot of editing and i listen to a lot of people and Mm -hmm. i listen to feedback from other people about other people Mm -hmm. and i learn from that
1: so once you have it on paper Mm -hmm. and it feels like all right here's i got a story here it started to make some sense All right. So for example, some people will say, start at the end, know where you're going, right? All right. I end in this place. So now I, other people might say, start somewhere else. Like do you have, once you have the story down, is it, does it tend to take shape with certain things like that? I don't know. Mm -hmm.
0: Hit or miss. I used to, and I still do maybe in the drafting process, put a lot of unnecessary um, information to get where I'm going the only thing I, saw, I like to start and I've learned is you have to start in the middle to start in the, to move, to start it closer to the end. I don't know what my end is though. Sometimes I have right. been, endings are very difficult for me.
1: Yeah, me too. So when you say start closer to the end, even if you don't know the end in the editing process, you realize sometimes you're moving, you're starting closer to the end more into the action or the heart Correct. or whatever you call it.
0: Correct. Because I've looked at my old stuff and I have all of this exposition that's right. just unnecessary.
1: Right. And for for story, I think it matters. Well, it's not just story, but like I think a lot of people don't always realize you're going to lose us. Yes. So you don't have to act like a clown to keep us in there in the beginning, but you got to do something.
0: Y- yeah. And 30, even
1: 30 seconds of exposition background, sometimes is enough for us to check out, right? And then we're going to be on our phones.
0: Nothing's happening.
1: Something's got to happen.
0: But I mean, you're right. If you're just telling, well, this is what happened, how I got here. Just like... Saying platitudes or something at the beginning—it's just I need to yeah. get right into it.
1: Right, it's not anchored to anything.
0: Right, put me in that place. So I—that's that scene, that moment, that whatever—and um, I think that's the only thing that's really solid with me. That I, if I put myself there, start there, it's easier for me to
1: continue. Right, and then when you do that, you can sometimes go back and share that stuff. But now it has different meaning for us. Exactly.
0: I think sometimes I fall into, and it's just the processes. I'm still learning reporting, listing, Mm -hmm. listing things that happened, you know, and then you, you realize like, and I've done that. I've done that in a couple of things that I've worked on in here and other places. It's like, I just list this happened, this happened, this happened. That's not a story. And it's also when you just list all those things that happened, you leave yourself out of it. Or I tend to leave myself out of it. So.
1: It's hard. Yeah, it is. When you watch storytellers, maybe this is geared more towards like newer tellers, but it doesn't need to be. When you watch them and you're like, hmm, you know, good effort isn't quite working. Where do you think is like the most typical things they're getting it, for lack of a better word, wrong? They're just a little off. I think,
0: just, I think a lot of exposition or a lot of fluff that doesn't need to be there. Mm. The five minute story and a lot of description and extra stuff doesn't need to be there. And there need to be a lot of, it's a lot of um, bridge work to the scenes, which doesn't need to be there either. Or, or sometimes it's there. It's like, just move on, get to the
1: heart, get to it. meet the point. I wonder why we struggle with that so much. Cause it's a lot of people. I wonder if it's just the way our brains are, or maybe the way we're taught with essays, like something about it makes it hard for people to even know what that means, get to it. Like, like, what do you mean? It might be an insecurity,
0: adding a lot of stuff, being afraid to get to the point or just, it's just, um, I don't want to say immaturity. It's just, um, when you're starting, I was looking today cause I know I have a story in there that I want to tell. And I was looking at what I wrote. I was like, Oh my God, I can't yeah. believe all of this stuff. I know. doesn't need to be there.
1: I have a, until like last year, it's like the only thing you'd find on YouTube from me was this thing I did years ago. It was, like, it was more of a monologue than a story and it was actually read on stage. But um, I look back at that, I'm like, oh, it's mm-hmm. like, please don't ever, anybody, I can't take it out. It's, I didn't put it up. Mm-hmm. Don't find this thing. I don't know. I'm like, it's a cute. It's cute. It's nice. It's heartfelt, but it's like, there's just so much gook. Yep. And shit. And it's like, blah, 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 blah.
0: Yeah, I know, I know, but that's all, you know, that's all, that's all part of it. And it's lovely when you see that and you're like, oh my God, Right? I'd never do that. But that's a wonderful thing to to, to see how you've changed and grown.
1: Yeah, to have the awareness is a huge thing because then you can say, okay, I can tweak it. And a lot of
0: people don't have that awareness.
1: They don't, No, know. Present company excluded, of course. If you're comfortable, do you have any favorite storytellers?
0: Um, <laughs> I like Richard Cardillo.
1: Oh yeah do you know richard he he was actually uh, on one of my very early shows back in like maybe April or may right after the lockdown. He came on great story, something with a priest I remember i don't remember yes, the he was
0: uh, he was um in the um brotherhood fatherhood yeah mm-hmm. with brother mark he was brother mark he has a a lot of stories about that. I'm trying to think your your i mean my
1: my my oh um I do like adam Wade why do you like adam? Or Richard, why why do you why do they come to mind? They're
0: just fun to watch. They each have their own very unique styles. Yeah. And they they have interesting stories. They're fun to watch. They're fun to listen to. And I've just seen them a lot in New York. I also like a woman named Michaela Bly. She was a mm-hmm. grade school teacher. Mm-hmm. And she has a lot of stories about teaching. And while I was doing my solo show, I started to watch her stuff about teaching. Mm-hmm. And I was looking, she's just Telling the story. There's not all this acting mm-hmm. and sets and things.
1: And I was like, yeah, I got the ticket. That's what I want to do. I like her stuff. This story, what made you want to put this story together? Because it was actually a story that you had written and it wasn't that Hey, it said, hey, Rana, write a story for the podcast. You had this story yes, before correct. that. So do you remember what it was that you wanted to? Do with this information, put it in a story form. Do you know why?
0: Yeah, because it was just such an unusual experience. It mm-hmm. was almost surreal, just what I I did. Um, the whole situation was just, yeah, it was just very surreal. And I I don't want to, I hate that I wanted to share it. I just wanted to tell it, like maybe get it off my chest. Mm-hmm. And it was very
1: intimate. A lot of people wouldn't share that kind of one of the points I'm thinking about, like some people would never want to share that. Is that what storytellers do maybe? Is there a little bit more open to that? I don't know. Maybe,
0: maybe, maybe not. I mean, it happened so long ago that 15 years ago. So it has taken me, before I thought about storytelling, did I think I thought about this, but did I think about being public with it? Not really. I don't have a problem being public with it. I think it's um, an important story. I think wanted to chronicle it. I never forgot it in my head. Mm-hmm. I never put it on paper. I have very vivid details and, and, and memories, but I put all of this extra stuff to get get to the story. Yeah, it's just you know, it's part of my life, so it's just something else. And I hear so many stories now, and I hear I've been hearing so many stories, you know, um, more so in the pandemic, because I'm all of these zoom opportunities. And um,
1: I think this just belongs. Do you think the story's done? Like when you're done with the story, is it ever totally done? Or because some people like, I'm done, right?
0: You can be done if you don't want to go back to it. Mm-hmm. But I think you can go back to it. I think it would have been a different story ten years ago. Mm-hmm. when I was ten years younger. I think. Right. You I think you, if you want to, you can go back to a
1: story. I would imagine many stories change. You're older. Time.
0: Just even a little, just a little something could change.
1: I yeah. Think. If somebody's totally new to storytelling and they're hearing this, mm-hmm. like I want to try
0: mm-hmm.
1: any tips.
0: It was many storytelling events. So you can hear, and I would say take a class. I really would, but um, I really would not only just to meet people, which is wonderful, mm-hmm. but it is a craft. Yeah. It is an art to get the feedback and to hear others, I think is important. And I think, as opposed to being in a big open mic type setting, I think an intimate setting in a classroom or like the swap shop or something, I think, I think that's really valuable. And if you have the money and the time and you want, take a class. Even if you've been doing it a long time, you still learn. Mm-hmm. Go see, hear. Maybe work with someone who, isn't, who is new. Mm-hmm. If you've been telling for a long time, just keep doing it. Keep sharing and I think helping newcomers
1: what's one big difference between the story that we've probably just heard on this podcast and an earlier version? What's a, one or two really big differences?
0: I know for one thing is the beginning and the end that I know for sure.
1: When you say that, you mean like where, just where you're starting? You know, where how I started.
0: Yes. Yeah. And probably just trimming and making, making things a, a clearer and allowing myself it wasn't problematic, but I didn't, in the earlier version, allow myself to really state what I was really feeling, mm. my, my fears and my, what I thought was selfishness, whatever. Um, again, it wasn't that I felt funny doing it. I just didn't do it. I was like, oh, yes, I could. I can. I can. This is how I felt. It's the writing. It's not, I wasn't fearful of anything. Yeah. It was just going, oh, yeah, I, sh- I need to do that.
1: And you're able to go back 15 years and remember what you were feeling
0: in this particular instance. Yes. Yeah. This one. Yeah. This one. Yes. Because it haunts me for many, many, there's a couple of things like the story I have about my mother. There's those certain moments in my life that I remember what I felt Yeah. going on in my head. Yeah. There's just those, those certain, for me, those certain moments that, that I do remember what i said exactly i don't but what was going on inside absolutely right right
1: I, and i wonder if that's one reason why people tend to share sort of the bigger stories of their past because just remember them easier you know maybe they don't remember every little moment as, as much as they think they do but they remember what they were feeling
0: yep i do
1: cool yep. good thanks rana and, uh, yeah, like sort of piggybacking off what you said, Ronnie. Yes. It's good to give and get feedback regularly. If you can, you get better.
0: I am going to be so sad when things are like back to like this back back, 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 back to normal. I don't know, but I was thinking about that. It's like, Oh God, I can't live without this.
1: As always, thanks so much for listening. Special thanks to Rana up in Brooklyn. Thanks, Rana. Great story. Thanks for the talk. Remember, we've got a 99-second story slam coming up this Sunday. And the following Thursday, a four-week beginner's class. So if you're interested in learning how to do this stuff, crafting and telling it, just getting a little better, join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. That's all for now. Boom.